Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. There is a greeting that has been used on this day for, uh, for the past 2,000 years. And it's simply a greeting that one person says, He is risen, and everybody else responds, He is risen indeed. Now, what you need to understand is, this has been practiced by Christ followers, particularly on this day for the last 2,000 years. And it was intended in those first century believers to be a means of encouragement, to mean, be a means of hope and, and inspiration facing a pretty rough life because of your faith. And it was a way to encourage one another that says, no matter how beat up you might be, no matter how life might be going for you, no matter what the circumstances in your life might be, he is risen. And you say... Oh, come on. We're talking about life here. Come on, say it like you're alive. He is risen. risen All right, that's more like it. I don't know what Easter means to you because Easter means a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, When I was a kid, it was all about the egg hunt, chocolate bunnies, and of course, marshmallow peeps. And for a lot of people, it's, it's kind of a sign of spring. It's a celebration of rebirth and the death of winter uh, and, and the rebirth and regeneration of the earth. And it's, and it's all symbolic about that. And for some people, it's, it's um, well, like Pastor Larry, it's the one Sunday out of the year you wear a suit. <laughs> all dressed up and pretty, you know. I feel underdressed this morning. Nobody told me. I didn't get the message. For some people, it's just it's a celebration of a historical event. And you can believe in the history of it. You can even, even believe that, yeah, this actually happened, that, that Jesus Christ did rise from the end. But unless, unless it hits you personally, you've missed the point. Because the point of Easter is it's personal. This is something that is meant for each and every one of us as individuals. And one of Jesus' disciples had to discover this for himself. His name was Peter. And Peter had seen the resurrected Jesus and actually seen him on a couple of occasions, but but there was something missing. It hadn't quite connected with him on that personal level. And and in John's gospel, which is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're not familiar with those, um, John tells us a little bit of this story. And and the story actually happens a couple of weeks after the resurrection. And it's almost an epilogue to the um, the whole gospel story. The whole resurrection story. And it's like, it's like John, and John kind of gives us the behind the scenes picture. He gives kind of these in-depth conversations that Jesus had with people. And, and it almost seems like in, in chapter 21 of his, of his gospel, that that's the end of the story. But then he adds one more chapter, chapter 21. And it's like he's saying, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. There's one more thing you got to understand. That, that, that the story is over now, but there's still one more thing. There's one thing missing. And here's what you need to get, because this is the point of all of it. That it's personal. And what he records is a personal interaction between Jesus and Peter. The other disciples are around, but it really is about Jesus and Peter. And if you want to follow along, we're going to read it together this morning. It's in John chapter 21. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just borrow one that seat next to you. And if you don't have one of those and can't find it, just listen. John tells the story this way. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. 
So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But his disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And thank you very much for asking. No, that part's not in there. (laughs) He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped wrapped up his outer, outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water, swam to Jesus. Something happens here. And as you go through the rest of the story, and we're going to go through it in a little bit, something happens in Peter that takes this this historical event, this this thing that he's really happy about and really excited about and and happy to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. But, But here's where it becomes personal. And what Peter learns in this interaction that goes on from here is something that each and every one of us need to understand. And if you walk out of this room this morning and you don't understand the personal connection between you and Jesus and this resurrection, then you've really missed the point. And so it's my prayer this morning that when you would see that where this resurrection intersects your own life experiences, it really does become personal. And what Peter learned, and what I hope you're going to understand this morning is, this is for you. It's personal. And there's some promises that, that are fulfilled in this, in this whole thing that make it personal. The first promise of the resurrection is that Jesus will always meet us where we are. Always meet us where we are. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. He doesn't wait for us to get our stuff together. He comes to where we are at. And one of the things I love, what makes the Bible so, such a reliable document to me, is it doesn't, it doesn't idealize these people. You read through the Bible, and these aren't, these aren't special, um, idealized, kind of sanctimonious saints that have it all together. They're real people, just like you and me. And Peter is one of these real people. And the scene opens with Peter saying, I'm going to go fishing. Now, that doesn't mean much to you unless you know the backstory. And if you're not familiar with the story, the story is this. Peter was one of Jesus' top draft picks. Okay? He was like in the inner circle. He was the inner three of the 12 closest disciples. There was three closer ones that Jesus took with him on, on special occasions and kind of poured himself. Peter was being groomed for greatness and for leadership. Jesus poured himself into Peter. And this Peter, he was like the rising star among all of them. He was the guy that everybody's looking up to. It was Peter, it was Peter that when Jesus said, so what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Everybody said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some say this, some say that. And Jesus said, so but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter. It's Peter who stands up and says, you're the Messiah, son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You, this is not your own word. This has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. It's like Peter goes, whoa. This is cool stuff. In fact, on another occasion, earlier in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus starts talking about what it means to be a follower of his. And, and that this is more of a, of a lifetime commitment. This isn't just a come along for the free meal kind of a deal. And it says after that, a lot of the people who were following him started to drift away. Because he was asking more of them than they were willing to give. And, and, and Jesus turns to the 12 and he says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? And it's Peter again. Peter is one who stands up and he says, Lord, where would we go? Where else would we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. 
And on the last night that Jesus spent with his followers, and he said, you're all going to fall away from me. You're all going to give up on me. It was Peter. It was Peter who declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never, never disown you. And within about 10 hours, faced with a little young servant girl who said, oh, you're one of his followers, aren't you? Jesus, Peter denied him. Peter denied him. He was afraid of a servant girl. (laughs) This rising star, this rock star, this, this, this leader to be just falls apart. And when, G, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I understand. I've blown it so bad. There's no hope for me. Oh, yeah, God, Jesus had great intentions for me. He, he poured himself into me. He gave me all these encouragements. He called me a rock, but I'm not a rock. I'm a bowl of jello. And there's no future for me here anymore. I'm of no use to him. I'm going back to what I used to do. See, what he does is he does what every one of us do when we face our failures. When we're feeling bad about ourselves, when we're feeling like we've messed up big time, we go back to what we're comfortable with. We go back to what we know. We go back to what makes us feel good about ourselves. And that's what Peter's doing. And when he says, I'm going fishing, what he's saying is, I give up. This, this, this following Jesus, this leadership thing, this is not for me. I'm not cut out for this. I got no future here. I'm going back to what I know. And what's great about it is the other disciples say, well, we're going to go with you. Now, this is important because they don't leave. When when Peter's feeling his lowest, they don't leave him alone. And by the way, this is why our community groups are so important. Because it's when you build those kinds of supportive relationships, when you are at your lowest, there's other people who will not not give up on you, who won't leave you behind. And that's what I love about these stuff. They said, well, we're not going to leave you out by yourself. We're going with you. And so this Peter who was claimed to be a rock, who Jesus had endorsed and encouraged and poured his life into, had given up on himself, goes out and goes back to what he knows. And you think, well, that's the end of the story. But what happens is that Jesus goes right to where he is. We're told a little bit later. Early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize who he was. That, that, that Jesus goes to where Peter's at. He's out there fishing. And so what Jesus does, he goes and meets him where he's at. And by the way, that was typical of Jesus. Jesus always went where people were. He didn't hang out with the religious people. He didn't hang out with the people who thought they had it all together. He went to the people that everybody else gave up on. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, people who thought there was really no future for them. See, that was Jesus mode of operation he always went where people were and not the people who had it all together people who were failures who had given up on themselves and so jesus does this he comes and he comes to the seashore and this is the very same seashore the very same place where three years earlier jesus originally called peter this is the very same place and it's the very same experience because on that occasion we were told in Luke's gospel that the very same thing happened. That they were out fishing and Jesus said, have you caught anything? And they said, no, we haven't. And he said, well, put your net on the other side of the boat. And they hauled in such a great load of fish. said the net couldn't even contain it. 
So he, he meets him exactly where he's at. He, he puts him in the place and the time that he understands. And he gives him that very same experience. And what Jesus is saying to him, Peter, I haven't given up on you. You may have given up on yourself, but I haven't given up on you. And why this is so important is there's a little bit of Peter in every one of us. Because every one of us have our own failures, our own struggles, our own mistakes, our own times in which we feel like we can't be of any use to God. He has no time for us. I've just blown it big time. No future for me here. John Ortberg wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. And he writes about this. And he says, we're all like that department in the, in the, in the store. When you go shopping for clothes, you know, and there's always, it's usually in the back. When I was a kid going shopping with my grandma, I still remember this. It was called the bargain basement. And it was on this table, just all kinds of clothes piled up. And you kind of had to rummage through them. And every one of them had a tag on it said, as is. Slightly irregular. Flawed. Some stitching missing. A stain here or there. We're not going to tell you where. If you can't find it, that's okay. But just understand, when you buy this, there is no returns. You're stuck with this. You pay for this. You bought it. You own it. And he says, you know what? Every one of us are as is. Every one of us. In fact, you might want to just elbow the person next to you and just remind them that I'm talking about them because they probably think they don't fit that category. But we all do. We've all got our flaws. We've all got our mistakes. We've all got our failures. We've all got our struggles. We're all as is kind of people. And you might be here this morning, and I just want you to know Jesus is with you, and he's pursuing you as is. He comes to you where you are, and it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter where you're at. He pursues you because he loves you. That's why Jesus goes after Peter. That's why he goes pursuing him. When Peter's given up on himself, Jesus hasn't given up on him. And it doesn't matter where you're at or even how you got here. I talk to people all the time, say, yeah, yeah, I, I grew up in church, but you know, I got burned by it. So I just, I've given up on religion. I've given up on church. I'm spiritual, but I got nothing to do with church anymore. And maybe that's why you're where you're at this morning. Or maybe, maybe you failed. Maybe something in your own life just so overwhelms you and just becomes so much for you that you think there's no future for me. God has no use for me. There's nothing for me here. Or, or maybe, maybe you grew up with it and you just, not on purpose, but just kind of sort of drifted away. What I want you to hear this morning, this is what makes it personalist. Jesus comes to you right where you're at. He doesn't wait for you to get it together, to fix your mistakes. It's called grace. And it's what Jesus came for us to understand. And the good news, the good news of Easter is what makes it personal is that he comes to you right where you're at. And, and when he comes to you where you're at, he doesn't condemn you for your past. He never condemns us for our past. See, God can redeem even our greatest failures, but here's the catch. We gotta own up to them. Our greatest failures, God can still redeem them. God can still work in them. Whatever mistakes you've made, the message of Easter is God can redeem even that. But here's the catch. You gotta own up to him. You gotta admit. The whole scene kind of fast forwards a little bit. Jesus has prepared breakfast for them. So they come in from the shore. They bring in all the fish and they sit down to a breakfast. And it says a little bit later, after they finished eating, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me 
more than these. Now, Peter knows what's going on here. This is the elephant in the room, you know, or or the elephant on the seashore. It's the thing that, that everybody knows about, but nobody wants to talk about. It's that, it's that thing that makes everybody just a little bit uncomfortable, but nobody really wants to bring it to the surface, and Jesus does. Because see, Peter had denied him. And it would be real easy for Peter to think, you know, I guess I don't love him like I thought I did. I guess I'm not behind him. I guess I'm not for him. I guess I don't follow him like I thought I could. And so what Jesus does is he asks him, do you love me? And it's an awkward moment. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, what I want you to notice is what Jesus doesn't ask him. Jesus doesn't ask him about his past. What he asks him is about his present. Do you love me? Now, that's probably not the question I would ask. I could think of a lot of questions I would ask had I been in that situation. I would see things like, okay, so have you learned your lesson? (laughs) What were you thinking? (laughs) You thought you could handle this all on your own strength? Okay, are you going to try better now? Are you going to do better? Are you going to try harder? Are you going to be stronger? Are you not going to fail me next time? Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't ask him about his past. He keeps it right in the present. He says, do you love me? Because see, that's what's really important. That's what really matters. When he takes us where we're at, he doesn't condemn us for our past because he came to forgive us of our past. Now, this is a painful thing for Peter. In fact, it becomes real painful because Jesus asked him not once, not twice. He asked him three times and says that Peter was hurt. He was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? See, it's painful to own up to our failures. It's painful to own up to our mistakes and our struggles. And and we have this thing, psychologists call it cognitive dissonance. And what it is is its ability to hold two contrasting ideas in our head at the same time. That, that if, if anybody here ever been to traffic school? Okay. A few of us. The rest of you have a little cognitive dissonance right now, okay? <laughs> if you've ever been to traffic school, I, I, my last ticket, I will just say it was 21 years ago, okay? I've got a good record since then. But I got this ticket. We had just moved to Benicia, and it was like 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was speeding because I was doing a side job, and I had to get to the job site, and, and sure enough, I got pulled over. And I got to traffic school. And here's what they do in traffic school, if you haven't been there. When you go to traffic school, they make everybody tell their story. Why are you here? It's kind of like, okay, come clean. And so everybody goes around, they tell their story. Yeah, yeah, I was speeding. But I was only five miles over the limit. I don't know why he gave me the ticket. I mean, five miles over the limit, that's allowed, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they they tagged me for, for not coming to a complete stop. But, you know, I looked both ways and there was nobody coming. Why did I need to stop? See, I know I'm guilty but I got a lot of good reasons for it. One of, my, one of my favorite books, I wish I had thought of this. Just the title alone is great. It's written by James Moore. And the title it actually comes from a, a line in, in Leo Tolstoy's um, War and Peace. And the line is this, yes, Lord, I have sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. <laughs> That's cognitive dissonance. And what psychologists tell us is, That because these are two contrasting things that they don't fit together, what it does in our mind is it creates this tension. And we try our best to excuse ourselves to know, yes, we're guilty, but but I had a good reason for it and I can justify my actions, but this tension doesn't go away. 
And, and so we, we carry with us in our minds this, this cognitive dissonance and this, this tension that develops over it. And if it's a little thing, we can kind of learn to live with it. But if it's a bigger thing, we live with this tension and we can't really find release for it. Because the only way you can find release is forgiveness. And the only way you can find forgiveness is to own up to what you've done. Because you can't be forgiven for something you can't admit to yourself you did. And so what Jesus is doing here is, yes, it's painful, and yes, it's hard, and, and, and it's really difficult time for Peter right now. But what Jesus is doing is he's giving the, him, the, him the opportunity to own up. And he asks him three times. And the reason that's so important is because it was three times that Peter denied Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing is he's giving him an opportunity for every denial. There's a chance to affirm your love for me. And that's what's so cool. That's what, Jesus, that's what grace does. See, that's what the resurrection is all about. We can take our failures. That he is the one safe place we can take our failures and find forgiveness Find release from the tension, from that cognitive dissonance in which we try to justify ourselves, but we know it's not good enough. And Jesus gives him three opportunities for every denial, a chance to affirm. And then for every affirmation, he does one more thing. He reconciles him. Jesus says to him, and he restores to him. Every time, every time he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, Jesus says, then feed my lambs. Then take care of my sheep. Then feed my sheep. Three denials, three affirmations, three restorations. For every mistake he's made, Jesus restores him. And he doesn't just forgive him. He says, you still got something to do. You still have use in my kingdom. You're still valuable and important to me. See, we can never truly be loved except to the degree that we are known. And this whole idea of confession, this whole idea of owning up to our failures is so we can know that it's the real me that Jesus loves. See, because if I don't own up to those things, then I never really know where I stand with God. Because I think I'm putting something over on him. But what Jesus, in essence, is doing with Peter is he's saying, listen, I know you. I know the real you. Not the pretend you, not the you that everybody else sees, not that strong rock that everybody else thinks you are. I know the real you, but it's the real you that I love. It's the real you I forgive. It's the real you that has a place and a part in my kingdom. And that's where it becomes personal. That's where it becomes real. That's where it becomes more than a historical event. It becomes my life because it's my failures. It's my as-is-ness that he loves. That he died to forgive. That he rose again to restore. That's what makes the resurrection personal. And the third thing is, that not only does he restore us from our past and set us right in our present, but he gives us a new confidence for our future. And that is also a part of the resurrection. He gives us the confidence to face whatever future. Now, it's interesting because Jesus tells him a little bit about his future. And it's not a pretty picture. It's not all sunshine and roses. Okay? It's not like, okay, now everything's taken care of. It's all good. We all live heavily ever after from here on out. You know, it's all bright sunshine and roses. You know, it's all, it's all, the, all, it's all good from here on. In fact, just the opposite. 
He says to them this, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. But when you're old, others will direct you and take you where you don't want to go. And what John tells us is what he was doing was he was indicating to Peter the type of death that he was going to experience. But then he says to him these very same words he did three years ago. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Follow me. No matter how bad it gets, you can still follow me because I'm with you. And, and see, if it was all about happily ever after and, and, and sunshine and roses, if it was all about you know, just rebirth and renewal and it's all good from here on out, we wouldn't take that because we know that's not real life. It just isn't. And so he doesn't promise him a happily ever after. What he says is, no, this is the reality. You're still going to live in this world and it's still going to be hard and sometimes it's going to get real, real hard. And in fact, and sometimes it's going to mean death. But... I'm with you. And you can face any tomorrow. You can face any circumstance. You can face any difficulty. You can get through anything because I am with you. He doesn't say your troubles are over. He doesn't promise him comfort and safety and security. What he promises him is strength. Because following Jesus isn't a safe thing to do. But it's strong. Because it's his strength, it's resurrection power. That's what Easter is about. See, Easter isn't some comforting metaphor. Because Easter isn't about just flowers pushing their way through stubborn soil. Easter is about real life. And what Jesus says is that, that this is real life. But here's the thing. The resurrection says that everything that Jesus has told us about life, about death, about God, about faith, about suffering, about celebrations, about all of it, about turning our lives over to him, it's all true. That's what the resurrection says. And when you understand that, that's when it becomes personal. Because what you do is you put your full faith and weight down, not on your own strength, not on your own abilities, not in, not in trying to make up for your own failures, but on what Christ has done for you. And it's simply called faith. And what faith means is to put my weight down on it. See, faith is not standing next to a stool and saying, yeah, I think that stool can hold me up. Faith isn't even just kind of leaning against it and going, yeah, that's a pretty strong stool. Faith is when I put my whole weight on it. And that's what Jesus is offering Peter. And that's what he offers every one of us. Whatever, wherever you're at, however you got where you are, it doesn't matter. Because he doesn't hold you to your past. He takes you as is. Now, put your weight down Thank you for listening the to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting sure. message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California. It's all about Him. Now, one more thing about this. Because a lot of times people say, you know, that's all well and good, but I, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Because they have this idea that that means that, means that I got to become I got to become this perfect person now. That somehow now I got I to do everything by the book. I can't ever fail again. I can't ever make any more mistakes again because, because now, now, now it's, it's all on me. Now, now I said I'm going to follow him, so I got to follow him. And I don't know if I can do that. And sometimes when it gets hard, we also start looking at, at other people and say, well, how come it's hard for me and not for other people? In fact, that's what Peter does. 
Peter, as they're, they're having this conversation and the conversation ends and they're, and they're walking away and as they're walking away and Jesus tells them about his future, what Peter does is he turns around and he, and he sees John, the other disciple, walking behind him. He says, well, okay, Lord, that, that's all well and good, but what about him? And Jesus says these words to him. He says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? What is that to you? You follow me. See, I don't have to, I don't have to become a robot clone to be a follower of Jesus. I don't have to make my life compare to somebody else's. Because your faith journey and my faith journey, they're different. Your personality and my personality is different. Your background and my background is different. Every one of us are different. And we don't become clones. We don't become robots. He takes us as is and he leads us on this journey. And all he says is, just follow me. Don't worry about anybody else. You just follow me. But he always leaves us with a choice. Always leaves us with a choice. See, he'll, he'll call us, but he won't coerce us. He'll invite us, but he won't manipulate us. It's always back in our court. Peter had to make a decision. At some point, he had to decide, okay, this is for me. This is personal. Scott McKnight wrote a book called Embracing Grace. And he writes about Peter. And he actually refers to a letter that that Peter wrote towards the end of his life. And he wrote these words. He said, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, I think Peter had to go through that failure. Because up until that time, he was pretty self-confident, pretty self-assured, thought he could do this whole Christian thing on his own. He thought he could follow Jesus all by his own strength. And what he discovered is he couldn't do that. And I think Peter became a better leader because of his failures. I think he became a better pastor because of his mistakes. He became a better person because he could admit he needed help. And so Scott McKnight's write this. When Peter tells us that our new birth occurs through the resurrection, he's probably giving us a firsthand testimony of the impact of the resurrection on his own faith. So it would be more appropriate for Christians to say that Jesus came not just to die for their sins, but to die for our sins and to be raised to empower us to live. Grace, as Frederick Buechner defines it, is like God saying this to each and every one of us. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are. And because the party would not have been complete without you. And here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. It's for you I gave my son. I love you. There's only one catch, Bigner continues. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. Maybe, maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. Take, Jesus said. Embrace me. Do you bow your heads with me?